0: Awesome. How are you all doing, church? Well, meanwhile. It's all right. It's got a good case on it. How good. Oh, man. That's, um, that launch party, there's a video, and um, we didn't get to play the video, but the video sort of paints out all the details. Um, can I just encourage you? If you've got someone in your world who you think could benefit from discussing ideas about meaning, purpose, life, and maybe even faith, that would be the place to which you can invite them. Be radically hospitable, They'll have an incredible time. It's all free. And if you've got someone in your world, a little story about that. I've invited basically every barista I know because that's the one world that I get to interact with which is outside of the church because I'm, you know, full-time here and that's a great thing. But um, it's like, you know, and uh, it just their interactions and their responses were fascinating. Some of them were like, this sounds really awesome. I'll try and come. Others were like, no, it's not for me. And I said, no worries. When are you coming to my house for a meal, you know? Um, but the point that I, I, I want to make, just as, we, as we begin, is, is this: that um, you just never know what someone can do with an invite, and you never know what someone can experience if they respond positively to that invite and come, and you never know what will happen if they come. And so, can I just encourage us? There's 48 hours left. Just invite and see what God might do. Um, I'm sitting in the, the dead spot again. Story of my life. Um, I'll figure out how to use microphones one day. Um, this afternoon, I want to talk on the topic of desire. And it's quite a nebulous topic, it's quite a difficult topic, it's quite an uncertain and unsettling topic, but I want to talk on the topic of desire, because I think we're a bit confused about desire. Hi, Ruthie. And um, I love seeing kids in the church, just getting away from one of our little ones up the back. Um, I think we sort of, at a human level, there's two things I think about desire that I think sort of plague every human. Regardless of whether you're a Christian or not, regardless of your background, there's two things that plague every human when it comes to the topic of, de- of desire, and I think one of those things is uncertainty, and the other is unfulfillment. Uncertainty. When I was growing up, um, I had the privilege of having a fridge that I could stand there and leave open and sort of peruse the food. You want to have this experience growing up? It's hot summer's day, sweating buckets, you go to the fridge, you're feeling snacky, and you just stand there, you know? and you're like, what do I want? What do I feel like eating? And there's just no answer to that question on those kinds of days when you're that kind of age, right? Just stand there, what do I want? I have no idea. And I think that's a bit like the human condition. You know, you think we've got a myriad of desires that sort of just plague us from the moment we wake up. What desire is the best? What desire is the strongest? What desire is the deepest? This comes out to me in the way that we live our lives on a sort of even deeper level than just food. Um, Think about your desires in the way that you operate from a day-to-day basis with work or your career or the communities you're a part of. Um, I can't remember who said this, but they said, you know, we spend all of our lives trying to fit in, and then the moment where we fit into the community that we so desire to fit into, we want to stand out. So we're like, on one level, I want to fit in. That's what I want. That's my desire. Then on another level, I want to stand out. I started watching um, Seinfeld recently. Any Seinfeld fans in the, in the room this afternoon? Yeah, come on. If you're not, we'll pray for you. There'll be prayer after the service. We'll pray for deliverance. Seinfeld's hilarious. And the pilot episode, <laughs> bit of controversy, um, won't be the most controversial thing I say, I promise. And, but it's hilarious, in my opinion. And, but I remember the first episode, Seinfeld's talking about like, just the human desire to go out. Does anyone remember this? Brilliant. Brilliant skit. He's like, we just all we want to do in life is we want to go out. So we get ready, we get the family ready, we pack the car, and then we go out. Then we get out. And what do we want to do next? We want to go home. And that's just, you know, so we have these desires, and we're uncertain which is the best, which is the strongest, which is the deepest. We're uncertain about the desires we should operate. And I think this is actually our lives. Growing up, I said this last week, but I thought deeply, but not hard. Um, I thought hard, but not well. Meaning I'd belly button gaze at night and think, why am I here? I really want to know the meaning of life, but then I'd wake up the next day and I'd be like, oh, bacon and eggs sounds good for breakfast, let's not worry about that question that plagued me the night before. More uncertain, what what desire is the strongest? What desire is the best? What desire is the deepest? But we're also unfulfilled. When I was living in the UK, um, actually I'll get there in a second, a few years ago, um, Tom Brady, the NFL quarterback, there it is, yeah, it's in my memory now. The NFL quarterback, he was being interviewed after he'd won his third Super Bowl. And if anyone knows anything about um, NFL and the Super Bowl, this is a big deal, it's like the grand final. If the state of origin like, had like a super series, it'd be the Super Bowl with NFL in the States. And he just won his third Super Bowl, had a Super Bowl ring, and this is like the, the, the cream of the crop for all sports players in the States. And he's being interviewed by 60 Minutes. And he was asked the question by Steve Croft, hey, how's it feel? How does it feel to get to the top of your game in one of the greatest leagues in the world? How does it feel? And he had this to say. He said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. But me, I think this, that God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be all that it's cracked up to be. We're not just uncertain about the desires we have, we're unfulfilled with actually the satisfaction we get from the desires that we have. That's played out in sports, it's played out in our careers, it's played out in our relationships, it's played out in every arena of life. When I was living in the UK, I was asked to do an essay on what I thought was the best argument for God's existence. And I wrote an argument called the argument of desire. It's not my argument, C.S. Lewis wrote it. And the best way to unpack what the argument is is just to quote him at length. So I want to quote it for you and unpack what he might mean. C.S. Lewis, in talking about desires, said this, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger? Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim? Well, there's such a thing as water. But if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If I find in myself a desire for which nothing in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is I was made for another world. It's his argument for God's existence from the way we experience life. What's he saying? Base level. He's saying there are good things we experience in this life that our desires point to, but even when we get them, we find ourselves longing. And that experience, on repeat, in the life of the human, that's a clue to the fact that it was never meant to be the thing through which you trafficked, got, or experienced meaning, purpose, and ultimate value. That's his point. Good things are good, but if you put them in the place of God, you try to get from then that which only god can give. good things are good, but only god is god. our desires point to him. that's his point. and so the point of lewis is just to make the case that do you know what you desire? do you know which desire is the deepest? do you know what your desires point to? and the question i want to ask as we lead into this text this afternoon is this, do you know what it means to desire god? to look through the things you entrusted your value to, to the very God himself who gave you those good gifts. I'll give you an analogy before we jump into Psalm 42. Imagine you're in a dark shed, and in that shed you can't see anything, but you start moving things around, and as you move things around, dust starts to suspend in the ether of the shed. And someone opens the crack of the door and light streams in. And you'd ask the person that you're in the shed with, hey, where's the light? There's two things you could point to. One would be the ray of light that lights up the suspense of particles in the air as it streams through. Or, like the millennial Instagrammers would like capture it on Instagram and put it through VSCO cam. And that's the kind of picture I'm sort of getting you to imagine. The second light you could point to is you open up the shed door and point to the sun. And this is Lewis's point there's beautiful things in this world, they're gifts from God. Do not mistake the gift from the giver. Look to the heavens and see the God who gave you desires that point to things in this world and through them to him who gave them to you. And so my question is up, do you know what it means to desire God amidst the myriad of things that we might desire in this world? And I feel like I had to do that little hiatus off to the side with an argument for desire because all of us in the room this afternoon might not be Christians. And the question I'd ask you to consider as we step into Psalm 42 is this, that could it be that what the psalmist invites us to consider is the very thing my heart longs for in this life? through all your background, all your story, all your experience, could it be that the desire, that the, the object of the desire that the psalmist talks about, could it be that that is what I am made for? So desiring God, three things. What it looks like, why we lose it, and what it leads to. What it looks like, why we lose it, and what it leads to. What it looks like, verse one. Let me read the words of the psalmist here. He says this, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. i got one word to capture what the psalmist talks about when he thinks of desiring God. Desperation. Absolute desperation. When I was growing up, we had a border collie, and we'd walk it down to the park, and we'd throw the ball for it, and it would go back and forth, back and forth. It would tire itself out. If you've ever seen a dog that's tired, you'll see a dog who hangs their tongue out of their mouth, and they're sort of panting, and it's like, oh, man, you really need a drink of water. It's a very domestic version of what the psalmist invites us to consider here, right? The closest thing I know in my suburban grown-up lifestyle is like a dog panting. I don't know what it looks like for, in the animal kingdom for a deer to pant for its life after a necessary fundamental substance that you need for existence, but that's the picture. That when the psalmist talks about heart, hungering after God, longing after God, it's not just this like, you know, peaceful, beautiful, Like when we think of Psalm 42, we think it'll look really nice on a Christian mug that you get from a Christian bookstore. This is life and death for the psalmist. He says that fundamentally, I need God to exist. Fundamentally, I need God for life. God is as fundamental for me as water is for living, as bread is for sustenance, as breath, oxygen is for breath. That's what the psalmist invites us to consider. Now you might say to me, Alex, it sounds really extreme. I don't wake up desperate for God. That sounds really extreme. Can we dilute it a bit? Can we sort of try and domesticate it a bit, make sense of it in a way that I can apply it to my everyday life? And I just say that if I say yes to that question, you'll miss out. One of the things I think we've gotten fond of doing in the church is diluting the vision of life that the scriptures invite us into. Now there could be a whole myriad of reasons for that. And let me speak as a pastor for a second. Sometimes that's okay. Life's hard. Life's difficult. Things get in the way and we get busy. But here's what the psalmist is about God. Desperate. I just want to ask the question this afternoon. When was the last time you were desperate for God? When was the last time that you hungered after God in the same way that you hunger after food every day? When was the last time that you woke up thinking, man, I just—I need to get in God's presence. I need to know him. I need to spend time with him. I need to love him, be loved by him, know him, be known by him. When was the last time you were desperate for God. Open question, invitational question. And I hope that as I ask it, you don't think, oh man, woe is me, condemnation. I just, I hope you hear invitation. That God would invite us to hunger after Him, to think of Him as fundamental to life. Um, I think of the words of Paul in Philippians 3 5. Let me read them to us. He says this What is more? I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Jesus Christ. Beautiful image of the life of a Christian. I discard everything. I would see everything else as completely worth throwing away in the light of the beauty of knowing God. When was the last time you were desperate for God? Now, some people will often ask me when I talk about desiring God, which, um, in conversation, not in this kind of context, i will say, what if I'm not desperate for God? Does that disqualify me? And I want to speak into that partially for a moment because I think there's a word for us here, actually. Um, and the word would simply be this, that um, what if I don't qualify? Am I Christian enough? I was chatting with someone two weeks ago and we were talking about what it means to desire God and their question was like, well, how do I know that I desire God enough? And I remember turning to them and saying, do you care that you don't desire God? And they said, yeah, I do actually. Like I long to long for God, you know? So they might not long for God, but they long to long for God. They might not be desperate for God, but they desire to be desperate for God. And I remember thinking, man, we've set up these like parameters in our heads as Christians that on the one hand, you either desire God and on the other hand, you don't. But it's a bit more complex than that. Here's another third sort of profile of person I think you can be. On the one hand, you can be desperate for God. You can desire God. On the other end of the spectrum is someone who doesn't care. But right here, just to the other side of the center is this. I care that I don't care. I care that I don't care. And if you've ever found yourself in a place where you're like, oh, I'm not desperate for God, that seems a bit extreme right now, or life's so busy and there's just a bunch of things in the way, but man, I wanna get back to the place where I care about God and I'm desperate for God and I desire God. Can I just say, just partially, with a, hopefully you've received this with a bit of wisdom, that's actually enough. Because that's evidence of God already working in your life. See, if all we did in life was we go about our human projects with our human endeavors, with human goals and human ends, then man, how are we going to desire God along the way? We won't. But what if it's the case that the Holy Spirit who longs to tenderize our heart has come near? Then what would be evidence of that? It'd be this that I don't I care that I don't care. And therefore, that's evidence of life, it's evidence of caring. And so I just say this to you this afternoon if you sit here and you think, man, I'm just not desperate for God in my life right now, I'd say that's not the end. It's okay. There's opportunity invitation here. And what's the invitation? Start where you're at. Use what you've got. Enjoy the fact that you might not love God as much as the person next to you, at least so it seems, and lean into that. It's actually okay. God can use where you're at, and he can leverage it. I'll put it this way. It's better to be self-aware that you don't care about God and you care about the fact that you don't care about God. Better to be that than apathetic. It's, it's better to desire to be desperate than to be disinterested. And the conversations I've had with people, as I've walked through this idea with them, it's liberating. Why? Because it qualifies way more of us in the room than who, who otherwise would qualify. You know, there's some people in our church who, they just like exude the Holy Spirit. You chat with them and they're like, man, they're just living in God's presence. And it's like, man, give me some of that. And the rest of us, average Joes, we're like, look, life's just a bit more busy for me. And I'm like, do they have a job? Like, do they work? How do they, how do they do this? And it's okay. But what do you do with that? Something. You've got to do something. Charles Spurgeon, I love how he said it. I was reading his commentary on the Psalms this week, and he said this. He said, the next best thing to living in the light of the Lord's love is to be unhappy till we have it. So you might be living in the light of the Lord's love right now, on fire for Jesus. Praise God. You might not be, and you might be unhappy that you're not. Praise God. That'll take you somewhere. That'll take you into his presence. That'll make you desperate. It'll make God as fundamental to you as water is for the deer. What it looks like. It looks like desperation, or if not desperation, a desperation to be desperate. That's what longing after the Lord looks like. Second, Why we lose it. Verse 3, let me read these words. The psalmist says, My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, Where is your God? I read this verse because I think one of the things we think can disqualify our desire for God is pain in this world. But the major point of this psalm is that even amidst his suffering, even amidst his troubles, even amidst his trials, that nothing dilutes the desire he has for God. The context is, some people think that this is David, the king, running away from Absalom, one of his pursuers who's trying to uh, run after his life. That's not confirmed by what we know, but it's one idea that people have when they read this text. Other people just think that as, uh, this is part of book two of the Psalms, written by sort of like a, an old school worship band called the Sons of Korah, and they just think that this is like them talking about what it means to exist as a community outside of Jerusalem outside of the place where God promised to land his presence and dwell, outside of the place where the temple is, the sort of thin place between heaven and earth, they're outside of Jerusalem. Either way, they're not in the good place, they're not in the promised land, they're not close to God, and they're longing to get back. And here's the thing that doesn't disqualify their desire, pain. And I just want to say, one thing that shouldn't disqualify our desire, one thing that shouldn't make us lose our desire or desperation for God is pain. I learned this really well when we were living in the UK. We traveled over to Amsterdam, and we got to know a lady who was uh, sort of working through a very terminal illness. And she'd come through the illness, got out the other side, and I said, would you change that? And she said, no. The way it changed my relationship with God, it's beautiful. I'd never felt as close to God as I did in my pain. Now, that's not everyone's story, but it was hers. And it made me realize something. Here's what doesn't disqualify our desire for God. Here's how we don't not lose our desire for God. Pain, it's got no part of it. Just an opportunity. But what can make our desire for God be diluted? Pleasure. John Piper, he's a pastor from the States. He um, put it like this. The greatest enemy of hunger for God is is not poison but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of true reality we drink in every night. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. The pleasures of this life, they're not evil in themselves. They're not vices. These are gifts from God. They're your basic meat and potatoes and coffee and gardening and reading and decorating and traveling and investing and TV watching and internet surfing and shopping and exercising and collecting and talking, but all of them can become deadly substitutes for God. What's he saying? He's saying that people get weary of their desire for God, not because of pain, but because of pleasure. Pleasure that actually the thing that can dilute our relationship with God the most is just the everyday, mundane, beautiful things we experience that we mistake for God himself. It's sort of the inverse of C.S. Lewis's argument. See, good things are good, but if you use them as God or put them in the place of God, then they can become deadly. Good gifts are good, but they are not God. And so I just want to ask this question this afternoon. Reflect on your week. Reflect on the good things that you've been given in this life. All of the gifts. And this is a hard question, but I'll ask it. What have you used to distract you from God? What's become your sort of comfort? For me, I love food. Like, you know, if I'm feeling down, straight to the fridge, like little Alex, stand there for a few hours, what am I going to eat? I love food. It just comforts me. I actually think that's a bit of a problem in Australia. We've got good food. We curate food. We enjoy it. It's nice. But what is it for you? You know, maybe it's a drink, a knockoff wine. Maybe it's, um, I don't know, what is it? Maybe it's just scrolling the internet and stimulating your mind so you don't have to think about the hardness of your day. What, what is it? What's the good gift that you've been given that you use as a substitute to distract you from God? It's the pleasures of this world that'll do worse for our relationship with God than the pains. Um, what am I saying when I say all this? I'm not saying we should not enjoy good things. What's Paul saying when he says, I consider everything is garbage for the sake of knowing Jesus? He's not saying everything is garbage. He's saying everything is relative. And there's like such a big difference. I don't know if you feel this. There's so many beautiful things in this world. A slow meal with a friend. A comforting treat to top off your dinner. A nice glass of wine at the end of the day. When you have got like, when you just want to play video games on your TV. That's actually, there's something nice about that. There's a whole host of things that are wonderful. But the task of the Christian is to relativize them, right? To relativize them. So what it looks like, desperation. Why we lose it, mostly because of pleasures. The last thing I want to say for this point is just this. Let's be a church that doesn't settle. Like, can you imagine... If we could echo the words of Paul and just say, look, there's so many beautiful things in my life, but I I just think it's relative to how awesome God is. And I'll do what I can to be desperate or to desire to be desperate, to run after God, to think of God as fundamental to my existence in the same way the deer thinks of water. Wouldn't it be awesome? Let's not settle. That's what we're doing when we take the good gifts and substitute them for the giver. Last point is this, what it leads to, verse 2. The writer says this, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? And I wanted to use this as the last verse because um, I think what the psalmist does here, the commentaries I was reading on this, they sort of think that the best way to translate that last phrase is like, when can I go and get face-to-face with God? Which is such beautiful imagery. We don't translate it that way, but that's probably one of the best ways to translate. it. And it's this hungering after, when can I go and get face-to-face with God? I don't know if you've got a friend that you've, like, just not spent time with recently, or a spouse, or, you know. And one of the love languages that um, gets pulled out is the idea of quality time. And, you know, you think quality time isn't quality because you're next to one another doing separate things. It's quality because you're face-to-face. And I just, I can't help but think of that love language as the way that the psalmist is talking about spending time with God. Just think about this, face to face. How romantic, how beautiful, how dynamic, how intimate that kind of language is, face to face with God. What it leads to. If you have a desire for God, it's leading to face to face time with God. Now, in this life, we know like we are frail, finite, fragile. If we stare at God in the face, like it, we might come off worse. It's kind of like getting too close to the sun. He's holy and good. But the Christian knows that actually we have a picture of God, a picture of God's face in the face of Jesus Christ, that when God chose us to show us his face, he stepped into this world, put on flesh and blood, and said, here's what I look like, here's who I am. We know what God looks like because of which we get to spend time with God because of Jesus. When the psalmist says, I want to get face to face with God, Jesus answers that for us and shows us what it looks like. But what could it look like in our lives? Two really quick things here. The first thing I think it could look like is personal renewal. Um, you know those days where you just like, I was saying to this, this to someone before, you like finish the day and you're like, man, I forgot to drink water today or like your partner or friend's got a migraine or a headache and you're like, did you drink water? And you know, water, it's so fundamental. Um, but there's days where you're like, you just go without water and it's like, oh, it's not a big deal. But it's not a big deal because we've got plumbing put in by the council and we can just go to the tap, right? But if you drink water every single day, rhythmically, it keeps you hydrated, keeps you healthy, keeps you well, it's sustenance, it's fundamental. And what I would say is, man, like imagine God, like one of the crazy things that God's shown us about himself is that he's available in the same way that the Brisbane City Council has made plumbing, you know, and water available to us. That's a staggering thought. But I'd just say it to us, right, God is available. God is available. He's available right now. He's available in this room this afternoon. He's available when you leave. He's available when you wake up the God of the universe who spun galaxies into being and put on flesh in Jesus, he's available right now. And I would just say to you, in the same way that you knee-jerk react to go to the tap and get water, what if that was your life with God? What if you woke up and you're like, I just want to spend time with God before I start my day? What if you went to bed and you're like, I just want to pray before I go to sleep? What if you, you know, went about your day and like, oh, maybe I'll just center my mind around the scriptures or have a God conversation with a friend or just meditate on the goodness of God and the fact that he's available to me. What if that was your life? What would it lead to? Personal renewal. And when I said before, let's not be a church that settles, let's not be individuals who settle. Um, I, I'm so sick of quoting C.S. Lewis, but another sort of quote comes to mind just as, we, as I preach this. He says, God is so kind and so gracious, and we're so foolish and mistaken, He's prepared for us a holiday by the seaside, but we're prepared to make mud pies in the slums. And that's a picture of the Christian life and discipleship. Knowing God face to face because of Jesus is like a holiday by the seaside in comparison to the mud pies in the slum, which are just the everyday trinkets that we so truly center our lives around. Don't settle, don't settle in this life the adventure God can have for you as you come face to face with him in an ever-increasing way, personal renewal. Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer, last quote for the afternoon, he put it so beautifully. He said, "'I love to see my Lord below. "'His church display his grace, "'but upper worlds his glory know "'and view him face to face. "'I love to worship at his feet, "'though sin attack me there. "'But saints exalted near his seat "'have no assaults to fear.'" I'm pleased to meet with him in his court and taste his heavenly love. But still, I think his visit's short, or I too soon remove. He shines, and I am all delight. He hides in all his pain. When will he fix me in his sight and never depart again? Can I invite you to stand, New Life? I want to be a church that's desperate for God. Desperate for him. Otherwise, and I'll put this really plainly, I think we're wasting our time, you know? I wanted to start the sermon, I completely forgot. Let me, well, let me jump here now and make a point from it. Start the sermon by just celebrating all the incredible effort our team's put in last week. Um, I think it was like six hours by the time we bumped in and out of this heritage-listed building. And so why don't we just take a moment for this sermon and actually just celebrate those who just gave time last week. Can we just honor our volunteers? So you take those hours and that resource, that time, and you ask, what's it all for? Why are we here? to meet with God face to face by his spirit through the person of Jesus to meet with God face to face and that personal renewal that God sparks in each of our hearts it'll lead to corporate revival and what God does in the wildfires he sparks in each of our hearts will overflow into the midst of other people that come and call new life home to those who don't yet know God and to the city that God is passionate about and so church let's be desperate for God together Let's get on our knees together. Let's long after him together. And when we don't match the sort of passion that our brothers and sisters have around us, let's use what we've got just to say, Lord, I wanna long for you more. And so here's my question this afternoon. What do you long for? What do you long for? What do you want? What do you desire? And for the Christians in the room, what do you need to do to desire God more? Maybe it's repentance, maybe it's confession, maybe it's prayer. But the space we're about to open up now as a church is space for that. And so I just invite you. Um, I'm going to pray in a moment, but can I just invite everyone to close their eyes and just join me in this prayer. As I pray, I just want to provide space for each of us just to think through what God might speak to us. Maybe there's a comfort you rely on too much. Maybe there's a sin that's so entangled us. Whatever it is, what do you need to do to desire God more, to not settle for long for the holiday by the seaside and not settle for mud pies in the slums? Let me pray. God, thank you that you showed us your face in Jesus Christ and that through him we now have relationship with you, a holy, just, but good, loving, merciful, kind Father. Father, we just make our hearts available to you right now. We ask, God, that as we respond in worship, not just with our mouths, but with our hands, with our hearts, with our bodies, with our whole being, God, as we respond in worship, God, would you speak to us? Would you just touch and prick the thing in our lives that we need to just pass over to you? And would you reveal in and through that, God, your kindness and your love? And lead us, Lord, as the psalmist prays, into life everlasting. Here and now, into eternity. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.